welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Alice O'Leary Randall has been called the first lady of the medical marijuana movement for a reason. With her husband, Robert Randall, they successfully sued the U.S. government for the right to use cannabis. In the late 70s, they worked to have 35 state governments change their laws around cannabis. And as Reagan came to power in the 80s, they founded ACT, the Alliance for Cannabis Therapeutics. Today, Alice shares about her work in the world of cannabis and the importance of on-the-ground activism. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm very pleased to be here today with Alice O'Leary Randall. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Lex. Thank you. It's really an honor to be talking to you. Uh, I know you've been called the first lady of the medical marijuana movement. And before we get into more of your recent work and, and all the things that you've accomplished in your career, maybe we could go back to the beginning about how you first got interested in cannabis at all. Well, that's a long time ago. Um, that's back in the late 1960s when, uh, when I was in college and my, uh, my boyfriend, who would eventually become my husband, uh, we were both in college together. And... Uh, you know, we started smoking marijuana for fun, um, like a lot of other people of our generation. Um, but my husband had um, had glaucoma, which uh, he was diagnosed with at a young age. He was 24 uh, when he was diagnosed with glaucoma, which is usually thought of as an old person's disease. Um, but Robert was 24. He was told he'd be blind by the time he was 30. And he discovered quite accidentally that smoking marijuana seemed to help his eye pressures. Um, When he smoked marijuana, the telltale symptoms of glaucoma, which is usually a a kind of a whiteout condition, um, or you will see tricolored halos around streetlights. And he would often get those symptoms, but when he had marijuana, he didn't. And, uh, you know, the remarkable thing about medical cannabis is that very often you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. It makes itself very apparent, and it, and that was the case for Robert. So this was in the early early to mid-1970s. Wow. And there probably weren't many people talking about this being a a helpful thing for health at that point. It was more seen as a recreational intoxicant that was probably seen as safe, but not as something for healing. Uh, absolutely right. Um, medical marijuana was absolutely nowhere on the radar screen. In fact, it's interesting. Um, a couple of years back, I had a call from a lexographer who was somebody who is interested in words and tracks down words and how they come into meaning and whatnot. And he, he told me that he was able to track it back in time and that, that my late husband, Robert Randall, was the first person to coin the phrase medical marijuana. Prior to Robert's case in 1976, um, this gentleman couldn't find any references to medical marijuana uh, anywhere in our literature. So it was nowhere to be found. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Now that's saying something. 
Yeah, well, you know, the federal government had made a pretty concerted effort to uh, to eliminate the the idea of using cannabis um, uh, in in a positive and a helpful way. Um, you know, their whole focus was, oh, it's a drug of abuse and it's going to harm you and destroy your brain cells. And uh, you know, it, it they did a pretty good job of erasing the concept of using cannabis in a good way uh, from the uh, America's memory. What was it like for you to be seeing both the recreational and the the health help and that yet be surrounded by the reefer madness still going on in the late 60s? Well, it was very lonely. <laughs> I, I don't know any other way to put it. Um, we, Robert, one, once we realized that marijuana was helping Robert, um, you know, and, and we're not saying that it cured his glaucoma in any way, but it did lower his eye pressure enough that um, he was able to preserve his sight. And once he realized that that was happening, we did everything we could to have supplies of cannabis um, available for him. And like many people, uh, we ended up getting busted. And, um, you know, we went to see the lawyer and, and Bob kind of mustered his courage and, and told the lawyer, well, you know, I'm using this um, to, to save my eyesight. And, I mean, the lawyer kind of chuckled and, uh, you know, rolled his eyes. Um, and he said, okay, well, prove it. And, and so those were our marching orders. We, um, you know, we could have paid a fine. Um, and it was only a misdemeanor charge. But once we realized, we, we discovered that the National Institute on Drug Abuse was creating a, a health report that they gave to Congress every year. And within that health report, the health report about cannabis and use of cannabis, it was mentioned that some researchers at UCLA um, had discovered that when you smoke cannabis, your interocular eye pressure goes down. Now, this was in 1975. And when Robert saw that in print, it made him so mad uh, that the idea that Congress seemed to know about this, and a lot of people in, in the federal agencies knew about this, but nobody was bothering to tell people with glaucoma. So Robert just got mad. I don't know any other way to put it, and we decided to fight the, uh, fight the charges in court, and we prevailed. Um, Robert was found not guilty by reason of medical necessity, which is to say that the, the crime that he committed, that is, growing marijuana, uh, was less severe than the harm he would uh, incur um, if he was if he was found guilty. Uh, that is to say, go blind. And um, so it was it was something we we, we took our lawyer's um, comment to heart and we proved it to him. Uh, we proved it to the court, and then we went on to um, to remind America. Uh, that cannabis has some good sides. And uh, it made for quite an interesting uh, 30, 40-year adventure. 
And making you into, in my opinion, a hero of this movement. I, I think that you know, U.S. versus Randall is absolutely one of the most important cases uh, involved with this. And can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to go for a medical necessity claim and to prove that? Because that's a that's a pretty hard thing to pull off in a legal setting. I'm curious about what it was like to to venture on that. Yeah, it it, it was hard um, because it, it even though it. Medical necessity is based on the common law concept of necessity, um, which which dates back to the Magna Carta. I mean, it's this is back into the 1600s. Um, uh, the concept of medical necessity was was a new concept uh, to to law, and we were very fortunate. We had um, we had great lawyer John Carr um, out of Washington D.C. and we were doubly blessed because we had um, a wonderful judge, um, Judge Washington was his name, and he was a former dean of, of the law school at, at Howard University in Washington. He was a very thoughtful, a very cerebral um, individual. Um, he was intrigued by the argument um, that our lawyers put forth. And so we didn't have a jury trial. We, we waived our right to a jury trial. Um, and we decided it would be better to have Judge Young, or excuse me, Judge Washington, um, take all this data in um, because he would be able to process it more differently than um, than a jury of our peers. Um, it was a good strategy all the way around, um, but he did set up very strict criteria. He was cognizant that people could take this and and you know at, at the time. Reefer Madness is in such full bloom. And, you know, for several years after this decision, we'd hear people say, well, you know, if we let people glaucoma have it, my God, everybody and their brother will be saying they have a medical condition. and um, It's just a red herring for legalization. Um, he was very cognizant that those arguments would be put forth. And so he wrote a very strict decision um, that outlines three criteria that people must meet um, in order to qualify for this defense. Um, it's been used rather infrequently um, throughout the years, and I think it's because Judge Washington set such strict criteria um, to use this as a, a defense. And do I remember reading that for Robert to prove the medical necessity, it was a pretty painful series of trials uh, to go through? Uh, it was a, a very painful series of trials. Um, not not just prior to the to the court um, or to the uh, decision, um, but even afterwards, um, we throughout all of this lex, we had this feeling that we were very, despite what was happening to us, despite the prospect that Robert might go blind, uh, despite the prospect that we'd been busted, um, we always seemed to have an enormous amount of luck. We we thought we had angels on our shoulders. Um, because within a couple of weeks of being busted, we discovered that there was a research program ongoing at UCLA um, where the ophthalmologist resided who had discovered that marijuana reduces intraocular pressure. And Robert called him up, and um, that was Dr. Robert Hepler, and, and Dr. Hepler said, well, Bob, if you can get yourself out here, I'll be happy to test you with the government's marijuana in addition to your own um, the conventional medications that you have. Now, if we had been busted even a month later, 
um, that program would have been shut down. We, we would not have been able to get the, the evidence that he provided us, which was just, um, it was irrefutable. Uh, it, it could not be denied. Um, but Robert did have to go through, um, well, I need to back up a bit because we, we had a two-prong operation going here. We were, we were fighting the criminal charges on one hand, but on the other hand, we had filed a petition with the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the DEA um, asking for permission to use their marijuana to treat Robert's glaucoma. And despite the, um, despite the evidence from Dr. Hepler, who's a very well-respected ophthalmologist, um, before NIDA would, would grant this petition, they forced Robert to go to um, Baltimore, to Johns Hopkins University, um, where, of course, he didn't have any legal marijuana at this point, and he couldn't bring his illegal marijuana into Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, but the government wanted him to be tested on every possible combination of conventional glaucoma medications. And it was a very difficult time for Robert because conventional medications do not do the job. He has to have he had to have marijuana added to the conventional medications. And so he endured a very difficult uh, five days at Johns Hopkins University, um, and they never got his eye pressures to, down to normal. So he went for five days with elevated eye pressure, and I'm sure he lost um, I'm sure he lost sight during that time. And after he received legal access to marijuana, um, at one point he lost that access. And again, the federal government made him go through these hoops and, and try, try all these conventional medications that they knew wouldn't work. And during, that time, during those times, I know he lost, he lost vision. Um, it was, in retrospect, it was a very, very difficult time. Um, and people sometimes say, wow, how did you do that? <laughs> and, you know, my answer is always, well, what else could we do? Um, we were talking about saving Robert's vision. And as publicity in his case went forth, um, we started hearing from more and more people who had discovered the same thing as Robert and other people, people with multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, Crohn's disease, just a large variety of, medi of medical conditions which seemed to be helped by the addition of cannabis. And we couldn't turn our back and walk away um, because we were walking in their shoes too. And uh, so we, we, we battled on and we did good. You sure did. And, and it's through the, this case that it opened up the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program. Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, that was through the FDA. And for the latter half of the 1970s and throughout most of the 1980s, um, that was the only way you could legally obtain uh, supplies of marijuana to use for, for health purposes. Um, and it was not an easy process to go, to, go through. It was uh, very difficult. It involved a lot of paperwork to be filed uh, with the FDA. Um, the DEA, you know, they, they could intimidate a doctor pretty fast. Um, and even though a patient may have had his or her doctor's support, once the uh, DEA called, called up the doctor and started talking with him or her, 
um, there were a lot of doctors who would not go forward uh, with the process. So um, it was a program that worked for a few, but it was obviously not um, not the long-term solution. And for those few who did manage to get through all the the bureaucratic red tape and get their tins of uh, of cannabis from the University of Mississippi Federal Grow Operation, um, is it true that that those pre roll joints from the feds were as bad as they say they were? Oh my gosh, they were te- <laughs> they were terrible. Um, there's no other word for them. You know, I, I once had the opportunity, I think it was 1978, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Mississippi. They were having, um, FDA was having a meeting there, um, public advisory meeting. So um, Normal was good enough to send me down to have a look at, at the University of Mississippi's pot plantation. And the way they treated uh, cannabis down there, I, I, I hopefully they've gotten better over the years, but you know, what I saw was cannabis plants. It was right after the harvest, you know, and, and they had they had chopped them down at the root. They'd laid them out on black tarps in, in hot Mississippi sun. And, you know, once it was dry, they just shredded it off into big barrels that were sent to North Carolina where these joints were rolled. Um, so it was, it was poorly prepared. It was incredibly low potency. If Bob would get cigarettes at oh, 2, 2.6 or 2.8% THC content, that was, boy, he felt he was just dying and going to heaven. That was, um, that was high potency from, from the federal government uh, in the 1980s and 90s. Um, it, it was, Robert often called it ditchweed, and it was, it was pretty darn close to it, but I think the other side of that is that even though it was low potency, it saved his sight. So, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis these days on high THC content, um, but there's also a lot of interest in low THC content with better prepared product, <laughs> certainly, um, but microdosing um, is, is talked about a lot these days. And I think Bob's case shows that you don't necessarily need high potency. Granted, he probably would have had to have used less marijuana cigarettes if they had been higher potency. He had to use 10 of the marijuana, federal marijuana cigarettes each day. Um, but even with that, it did save his eyesight. It, it's an amazing story. And even more so that this giant lawsuit was really only the beginning of your work together. You you continued on to, to work across the states to work on 35 states and their laws around mm-hmm. uh, medical marijuana? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, so many people think that, um, you know, the medical marijuana movement started with California in 1976, that those were the first state laws passed. Um, actually, the first state law recognizing marijuana as a possible therapeutic agent was um, in New Mexico in 1978. Um and what that law tried to do was establish a statewide program of research within the state of New Mexico. Um, it came about because a young cancer patient lobbied very aggressively um, so that he could have access uh, to legal supplies of marijuana to treat his nausea. And um, the state of New Mexico, God bless them, they, they worked so hard to try and get a program going 
to help this young man whose name was Lynn Pearson. Um, but they ran into the same obstacles that we had two years before trying to get uh, legal access for Robert. Um, and initially they just thought, oh, well, we'll call up the federal government and, and, and get some supplies and get the program going. And it'll be great because the federal government's been saying, well, we want more research. And here was an entire state willing to research um, medical marijuana. Um, but the FDA, the DEA, and NIDA um, just stonewalled them terribly. And, and Lynn died, unfortunately, without ever receiving any legal marijuana. But his legacy is that that state law became a model for 33 additional states. Now, this is between the period of 1978 and 1981. Um, 34 states in total passed laws in which they were states were willing to become uh, research centers for their citizens. And you know, I think sometimes how how much how further along we would be in terms of our knowledge if those programs had been allowed to go through, if the federal government had operated in good faith um, to make these programs successful. But that was not the federal government's goal then, um, and it is not the federal government's goal today. Um, they still obfuscate and they still fight uh, every step of the way. That must be frustrating to watch after so much time working at the same problem. Well, it is, but but by the same token, um, my gosh, look at <laughs> look at where we are. Um, you're talking to me from from Colorado, where cannabis is legal and uh, hemp is is producing wonderful uh, quantities of CBD, um, and our knowledge of um, the endogenous cannabinoid system, our, our knowledge just basically of, of cannabis is so much greater. Um, so even though, you know, we, we didn't solve it in the 80s, um, it seemed like we could, but we didn't. Um, it seemed like in the 90s we might get somewhere and, and really solve it nationwide because the, the AIDS community uh, really got behind the movement in those years. And uh, um, at any rate, in the 90s, the AIDS community came out in full force and, and tried to push this through. And, of course, that's what ultimately led to uh, Prop 215 and, and the restart of the state laws um, cycle uh, with California in, in 1996. So I think the combination of the discovery of uh, the endogenous cannabinoid system in the early 1990s, well, actually it was the late 80s, but um, it really started to get a foothold in the early 1990s. Um, that coupled with Prop 215 and the subsequent laws in all of the other states, um, it's created a it's created a momentum that um, I don't. I don't see them stopping it. I, I see them trying to slow it down. I'm always concerned that the federal government is going to make moves on the state laws and the state programs. Um, but honestly, we are so far advanced and the public's knowledge is so much better about this topic than it was when Bob and I started out, certainly, but even through the 80s and 90s, the, the public is very aware of cannabis's benefits. And if they haven't experienced it themselves personally, 
you know, Uncle Fred has, or, yeah, I have a cousin down in Louisiana and it's really helping her, or, you know, it's, the word is out. And I don't think they're ever going to get this genie back in the bottle as much as they'd like to. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think the public would stand for it. Yeah, it speaks to so much of of the the foundation you laid down because I believe it was 1980 that you co-founded the Alliance for Cannabis Therapeutics. So you started this cannabis uh, thing right as Reagan's coming into power, which I think is pretty amazing timing. <laughs> well, but you know, we had we had a uh, federal law at that point. Um, we were very fortunate. We had a pro bono assistance of a very large Washington D.C. firm. Uh, called Steptoe and Johnson, and they drafted federal legislation that was introduced in 1981 uh, by Representative Stuart McKinney, a very moderate Republican from the state of, of Connecticut. Uh, and eventually, that that legislation had 115 co-sponsors from the House of Representatives. Um, that's pretty amazing. This was in 1981 to 1984, that time frame. Um, so, but Nancy and and Ronnie did did kind of take a lot of the wind out of our sails. But um, also, uh, the release of Marinol in the early 1980s, um, also known as Dronabinol um, or synthetic THC, that really took the wind out of um, out of our sails in terms of um, the medical marijuana movement because the government, when it, when it okayed it and released it, said, well, this is the pot pill. And all you folks out there that have been yelling about how you need it for your health, all you have to do is take this, this pot pill. And it's just like marijuana, but you don't have to smoke. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was such a bald-faced lie. Um, but the public wasn't smart enough then. They, they they didn't. They hadn't learned yet, um, and I don't think the government. I, I think the government might try to get away with that a little bit with Epidiolex, which is coming down the pike, of course. Um, the GW pharmaceutical drug, um, and they might try to release that as as the be all and end all of the uh, cannabis therapeutic movement. But I don't think the public is going to go for it. Um, they won't fall for that trick a second time. I hope, I hope. not. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's one thing I've learned in all of this, it's every reformer I've ever met, it seems like, you know, we're all looking for the silver bullet. And Bob and I were guilty of it, too. That there's just going to be one thing, one secret lever, one little thing that we have to do, and it'll all be fine. It'll be great. Um, that's not going to happen. Um in, in many ways, the, the issue has become harder as a result of the state laws because now you have multiple states making all kinds of regulations and laws, and, uh, and you, have the, you still have the over, um, overarching umbrella of the, of the federal law, and it's so much more complex than it ever was before. Um, and so for those of you out there who are activists, uh, God bless you. Um, but don't think there's going to be any one thing. Um, and hunker in for the long fight because there's still a substantial bias against cannabis in our federal government and in many of our local governments. And we have to keep fighting. This isn't about, oh, if I just do one more thing, it'll be resolved and I can go on to do what it, 
was that I really wanted to do in life. Um, dig in for the long haul because it's going to take a long haul. You talked about importance of education, and I was wanted to he- learn a little bit more about the press that you founded, Galen Press, I assume named after the old Roman doctor, where I think your first release was five massive volumes collected during the marijuana rescheduling hearings that DEA had and the big collection of evidence you pulled together. Yeah, that was that was a very fun project because we at, at the end, at, in the last half of the 1980s, we our entire focus was on the hearings before Judge Francis Young um, in an effort to reschedule uh, or deschedule um, marijuana out of Schedule 1. Um, and we prevailed on that. Judge Young um, found in our favor, and of course DEA overruled him. Um, but there was a massive amount of evidence that was submitted in that, in that court hearing, which went over two and a half years. And the decision came out, and we had won, um, and we kind of looked around and went, well, we've got all of this evidence, all of these depositions, these testimonies from patients and doctors. What are we going to do? Just put it in cardboard boxes and put it up on the shelf and forget about it? That's The federal government would love for us to do that. But, um, but no, we did. I knew I believe it was Bob's idea, probably a collective idea, um, to to publish them ourselves, to to take the evidence and compile it. We compiled it into um, disease specific categories. Um, we also had two main volumes that had a lot of the uh, affidavits and then Judge Young's decision written out. Um, and this was in the late 1980s. Um, self-publishing was, was just making, um, just coming on to the scene, and so we were able to get software and, and create these publications. Uh, there were five volumes total, and you're right; it was named after the uh, the, the Roman, or was he Greek? Um, at any rate, the ancient physician Galen, um, and um, we. It wasn't a. It wasn't what I would call a runaway bestseller, <laughs> um, because they were pretty thick and pretty hard to slog through. But our best market for those were were libraries, um, and so they they went to a lot of libraries all across the country, and helped with um, again educating uh, the American public about cannabis and its positive use in society. When when I look back on all of our years. Um, in this issue, I, I sometimes feel that the job that Bob and I were given was really as educators. It was our job to re-educate America about about cannabis and its its positive applications. And certainly, the Galen volumes were um, were a big part of that. Thank you for bringing them up. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, of course, and actually, and you're you're correct. He was Galen was a Greek, but he was publishing during the Roman Empire, so around like the. Uh-huh. 180. And on that, with all this evidence, I mean, is it hard to watch politicians, especially asking for more evidence when, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago, there was more evidence than one person could read in a couple years, let alone now when you can't even get the whole outline of what the endocannabinoid system is without a PhD? It's infuriating. It's frustrating. Um, it's so belittling to the patient. I think that's what has always bothered me about 
oh, we just need more evidence and then we're ready to go. It, it's such a put down for, for people who, um, people who are seriously in need of this substance and, um, and who have gone in many cases to their doctors or to their legislators or, or whoever in good faith. And, you know, these people aren't lying hippies. They are not, they're not conning around trying to, you know, get a drug so they can get high all the time. These are people with serious illnesses who need help. And it, it, they get belittled by that argument. Um, I'm all for research because this endogenous cannabinoid system uh, is just going to lead to more and more discovery uh, going forward. Um, but it's like I said earlier, most patients, it's not rocket science to figure out if they're getting benefit uh, from the use of, of cannabis products. I just hate to hear the patient slapped down by that. Well, just just wait till we do the evidence, uh, or till we do the research and we have the evidence. Yeah. Absolutely. And I wanted to, to hear a little bit more about the two books that you published, uh, Marijuana Rx, The Patient's Fight for Medical Pot, and then more recently, Medical Marijuana in America, Memoir of a Pioneer. The uh, Marijuana Rx, The Patient's Fight for, Medici- for Medicinal Marijuana, um, that was a book that Bob and I put together in 1998 um, and um, was published in 1998, and it was our memoir. Um, Bob had become ill in the mid-90s with AIDS, and um, while we thought we were going to lose him in 1995, we we were very blessed and had an additional uh, five or six years, and and I said to him, Robert, we should be writing our memoir. And uh, he thought that was a pretty good idea. And uh, Robert was a copious note taker. And he would write in his journal and he would save all kinds of bits and pieces of data and paper and whatnot. And so we had a lot of stuff to to compile and go through. And uh, he wanted everything in there. And so that's what we did. Um, we put everything in there in 1998, and that was published by Thundermouth Press out of New York, which is now defunct. Um, and when I re-entered um, the movement, I, when after Bob died in, in 2001, I, I, I took a hiatus from uh, the medical marijuana movement. I, uh, I just I needed to do something else for a while, um, and um, that turned out to be hospice nursing. And I, I did that for about 10 years and um, and then retired in 2012 and re-entered into the medical marijuana movement, which at that point, it was like walking into a whole new story because there were so many state laws, there were, the endogenous cannabinoid system had been discovered and the research was cranking out and, um, I you know, it was a new scene for me. And um, I realized that a lot of people, well, our, our book was out of print and Thunder's Mouth Press had gone defunct. And so um, I decided, and besides, our original book was close to 600 pages, and not many people read 600 pages these days. Um, so I took the original book and I, I edited it down into about 300 pages. And uh, and that's that's my memoir, Memoir of a Pioneer. Um, and it, it tells people about the, uh, it's available on Amazon, by the way. And um, 
it will help educate people who are interested in the early days um, and how we got to where we are today. And of course, there is a saying that those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it. And, and I think there's a lot to that. Um, so those of you who are really into this issue, um, you might want to pick up my book and, and see, learn how the federal government um, and by the trickle-down theory, state governments uh, can obfuscate uh, a situation for so long. Um, and I hope you enjoy them. Hope you enjoy the books. And we'll have a link to the book in the episode notes. And so um, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, um, how has it been lately? I know you've been out on the circuit a lot, doing a lot of lecturing and talking to people and doing work for Mary's Medicinal. So what's it been like lately for you doing your work, and what's the future hold? Well, I have to say that recently uh, things are great. As, as I said earlier, um, I feel like I've had this angel on my shoulder through all of this, and, uh, and he or she is continuing to, uh, to help me out enormously. Um, in 2014, I, I told you I was re-entering the, uh, re-entering the movement after uh, having been away for about 10 years. And uh, um, I went on a, I threw the dog in the van and we went on a cross-country drive. Um, it was kind of a fact-finding mission um, to, to go to the states where legalization existed and, and to learn what we could about things. And uh, on that trip, I, I managed, I had the very good fortune to meet the folks at Mary's Medicinals. And, uh, and we kind of, we struck up a friendship and, um, and they have, um, they have helped me um, continue my education efforts relative to cannabis. Um, I'm publishing um, some little booklets for them called Mary's Cannabis Primer. Um, and more recently in this past six to nine months, we started the, uh, Mary's Prime Time, which is a newsletter that reports on uh, the many conferences that are uh, going on that are all about cannabis. You know, I remember 40 years ago, there was one conference, and it was put on by Normal, and that was the only cannabis conference in the country. Um, but now there's there's so many of them, and uh, we're not, we're, we're, couldn't possibly cover all of them, um, but we, we are selecting a few and, and writing up what's being talked about at them, what's going on, uh, the research that's being uh, discussed at these meetings, because people are fascinated by cannabis. And the, our discovery of the endogenous cannabinoid has, system has only made that more so. And people are hungry for, for information. Um, and so I pitched this idea to Mary's about doing Mary's prime time and, and letting people who can't afford to, uh, who don't have the money or the time to go to these conferences, giving them a newsletter um, where they can read about what's happening um, out in the world. Um, and all of those are available um, online at um, www.maryspubs.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're just basic good information. And that can be a hard thing to find these days. Amen. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And I look forward to an update in the future as, as more, things, more exciting things happen. That would be great. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. 
They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass Podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day.